Revelation 21, and I'm going to read the first eight verses, and we'll get started this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Father, we praise you this morning that you have provided a way through your son Jesus that death can be no more. And Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to rejoice in the resurrection of Christ, to be joined by faith to it so that one with you, we cannot die. Father, I pray that you would give us great joy in your purposes, in your plan. I pray that you give us great boldness. Father, may we not be found among the cowardly or among the liars. Father, but make us the thirsty and the conquerors. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Death is devastating. Um, I think in America we spend a lot of time and money and mental energy avoiding the reality that death is petrifying. It is terrifying. It is hopelessly tragic without Easter and without Christ. In Job 18, 14, he describes death as the king of terrors. But I really believe that there are a lot of people who don't seem to be afraid of death who ought to be afraid of death. I think there's a whole lot of people whose strategy in life, this is kind of the big strategy, is avoid thinking about the inevitable reality that their life will soon come to an end and that they are guilty of sin, and then what? I think there's a lot of people who simply don't want to talk about death. They, they don't want to think about death. They don't want to plan for their death. They simply want to blindly hope that everything will work out okay. There's a, a great book that we just read. We're, gonna, we're actually, Drew has picked it for the uh, Journey Quest book, so it's our, our leadership camp book for our students. And um, it's got great stories in it. It's by J.D. Greer. It's called, What Are You Going to Do With Your Life? And uh, in it, he quotes Blaise Pascal, and I'm just going to read this to you. This is from Blaise Pascal. He says, 
Um, he describes our lives like a giant party full of happy people, loud music, and dancing, and during which a monster unexpectedly bursts through the doors, grabs a random partygoer, mauls them in front of everyone, drags their bloody corpse out of the room. Everyone watches this in horror, and after it's over, stares at each other in stunned silence for a few minutes. But then the band kicks back up, and everyone returns to their frivolity, putting the horrendous display out of their minds. This horror is repeated every few moments until it becomes apparent that the monster is eventually coming for everyone in the room. And yet still the party goes on. I mean, when I read that, I thought, that is exactly what happens, isn't it? Like, Like someone dies and there's this jarring, tragic, you know, unsettlingness among everyone. And, and then, you know, pretty soon the music kicks back up and uh, people start talking and dancing and, and the party goes on. And then it happens again and it happens again and it happens again. And, and, and somehow, some way, I, I think we all think that it won't be for us, but yet it's going to be for us. Death is unavoidable. And in death, there is what I would call irretrievable personal loss. I, I read that somewhere and I like that phrase. Irretrievable personal loss. And what do we mean by that? Well, life is the basis of all of our pleasures. So think about this. Friends, family, laughter, love, food, sex, recreation, play, conversation, music, art, stories, travel, beauty. That's life, isn't it? Like all, all of that is what makes up life and death ends all of that. And we are shackled to this reality that death ends it all. And no matter the effort that we give to avoiding it all and and holding it back and and fighting for our life, in the end it will win. And and in Hebrews chapter 2, I believe that that what the writer says is absolutely correct. In Hebrews 2 chapter 15, it says this. It says that uh, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I I think there is some aspect that that is true, that we we are enslaved to this coming reality in which everything that we cherish and love and live by and everything that we know that makes up life will inevitably be gone and we'll lose it all. My friends, death is hunting us, and there is ultimately no escape. And you young folks, you don't realize this yet, but uh, us almost 50 folks, we're, we're starting to realize this, that old age is like a preview of coming attractions, okay? Uh, old age is this, is this continual jabbing of this progressive endings in your life, um, I, I just realized this the other day. I, I jumped out of the car and, and, I, and I went to run. You know, I was, I was like in a hurry. And so I went to run and, and, and it was okay. I, I still ran. But, but you know what? Those first couple steps reminded me. Uh, there will come a day when, when there will be the end of running for Jason Dirks. Like, like, you know, it'd just be the end. I'm not saying that I'll die yet, but I'm saying there's going to come a day where there will be no more running, you know? And there'll be coming a day where there'll be no more skiing and no more biking. And, and, and there's coming a day for all of us where, where there's the end, right? And, and it's a progressive ending as we get older. There's the end of romance and then the end of travel and the end of beauty and the end of work and the end of productivity and the end of health. And, and death ends relationships one by one. And we're forced under this increasing number of limitations and restrictions until we die. And my friends, it does not do any good 
to live in denial of that. I really feel like a lot of folks spend the better part of 80 years simply not thinking about it. Simply not thinking about the implications of their unavoidable reality of death. Not thinking about the implications of the reality of their sin and the reality of the judgment of God upon sin and, and building these straw walls of protection around us by, by, by reassuring ourselves things like, I'm a good person. Based on what? Based on somebody that's worse than you that you can pick out? You know, we build these straw walls on, on things like, well, God surely wouldn't send me to hell. Based on what evidence? The Bible clearly says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. We are sinners and we deserve death. We have earned death. We have worked to receive an eternal wage of death. Now, now, now why? Well, uh, because we're sinners, because we're created in the image of God. We're placed in a world that he has created. The sun rises on us and sets each day because God has told it to. The rains come and the crops grow and the cows calve because God has commanded them all to do so. The planet spins in this perfect rotation. The plants produce our oxygen and filter our CO2. The moon regulates the tide and keeps the ocean in check because God has ordained it so. The Bible says the cells in our body hold together because Colossians 1 says Jesus sustains all things. And yet we live in this world, all of us as sinners. We, we each have not honored God. We have not sought our creator. We have not loved him. We've not obeyed him. We've not valued him. We have ignored him and treated him like a second class thing. Not the real important things in life. And I don't know how anybody could not deny that we've done that. Have we not? We, we've lived in such a way where like, God, here's really important stuff. You're over here. I'll give you a nod every once in a while, but but... But my allegiance and my honor goes somewhere else. And for most of the people on the planet, the reality is they will live and die ignoring God. They will live and die seeking to be their own God. Day after day after day of rejecting him, rejecting his son whom God gave to save us, to redeem us. My friends, that is sin. And sin has brought death. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die. And after this comes the judgment. That's our predicament. And yet, in Revelation 21, we read this beautiful phrase, and death shall be no more. And did you hear that? In Revelation 21, we, we read this of this time for these people described in this book, and it says, for them, there is coming a time when death shall be no more. Now, how can that be? I really want us to think specifically, how can that be? How can there be a people for whom death shall be no more? Okay, so let, let me just map that out kind of, kind of step by step, all right? So number one, God has loved us in our sin and has sent Jesus to be our representative, all right? So in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to read several verses here. Verse 9 says, But we see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Okay, it's talking about uh, Jesus here, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I'm going to skip to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, okay? We, we, we live in these bodies, okay? He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not of angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, so let me me unpack all that, all right? God loved us in our sin. He sent Jesus to be our representative. Jesus, who is God, was made like man. He put on human flesh, okay? He, He experienced all the suffering, all the temptation, all the struggle of this life, and, and then he died. He plunged into death. Okay, follow me here. Jesus, who are represented, he became man, experienced everything that we have except without sin, and then he plunged into death. And while he plunged into death, the scripture says he made propitiation for our sins. Now, what is propitiation? Propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. In other words, he appeased the wrath of God. He satisfied the righteousness of God. Propitiation is just not a word you use every day, is it, you know? And and, and so I want to make sure that you get this, and so I'm going to give a very imperfect example, okay? Imperfect illustration. Do you you hear me saying imperfect here, okay? Okay, so Jesus' propitiation, okay, satisfied the righteousness of God and the wrath of God, appeased the wrath of God. Okay, let me give you an illustration of propitiation. Um, There was a time years and years and years and years ago where I had been working for several months with not a day off, and my wife really needed me to do some things. And so I said, hey, this day, I'm going to take that day, and I'm going to do all those things you want me to do, and, you know, we'll do this together, and, you know, I I just, all that. And so that day came, and uh, I was working in the kitchen in the morning, and I got a call. Was somebody and they kind of kind of had an emergency and like I need you to be here, but it really wasn't an emergency uh, anyway. And I was I was young and dumb and instead of like just calling one of the other guys, I was like, you bet, yeah, I can do that. It was going to be an all day deal. I can do that. My wife's listening on the phone and man, she I hung up the phone. And I knew I'd made a mortal error. I, I'd really had made a terrible, terrible mistake. I was trying to justify it by, well, I'm just trying, I'm following Jesus on him, doing his work, you know. But I could tell it was bad. It really hurt her. And, and, and she, I, I tried to reverse the deal, and she was like, no, no, I, I, like, I don't even want you to be here. You just, just go do your thing. Just go do your thing. Whatever, you know. But I could tell she was really mad. And, and so I left, and I uh, went up to church, and I told Andrew what had happened. He's like, dude, I'll go do that deal. He's like, you go fix that deal. And so I thought back, I thought of uh, those Old Testament stories. You remember where Esau and Jacob, you know, they had that terrible, terrible fallout, and, and, and they hadn't seen each other for a long time, and they're going to see each other again, and Jacob's afraid that Esau's going to kill him, and so do you remember what he does? He, like, sends presents. You remember that? Like, in the story, like, like he sends, like, some sheep, and then he sends some cattle, and he, like, he sends, like, all this stuff in front of him, like, every 10 minutes he sends, and so, like, I went out, and I bought, like, all the snack stuff that my wife likes, and, like, a Diet Coke, and, you know, like, what she wants from Sonic, and, and like, I just had all this, like, stuff, and I would come, and I'd put it on the, on the door. You know, we used to do this as kids and you ring the doorbell and run, you know? So this was back when I could run. You know, I'd ring the doorbell, I put that deal on there and I'd run, and, you know, and I did that like, like every 10 minutes or so. And, and finally she like called me. She's like, quit, come on, you know? I, it was a propitiation, okay? 
See, I mean, it, it satisfied the, the righteousness required and it appeased the wrath of Emma, okay? Does that, does that make propitiation better in your mind? You see, you see what happened? Jesus, Jesus plunges into death and he becomes the atoning sacrifice, okay? He, he satisfies the righteousness and justice of God because he is righteous, and, and, and he dies to pay the penalty for our sin. And the value of Jesus Christ, it, it, it satisfies the righteousness of God and appeases his wrath. In Jesus' death, he dealt with our sin. You see, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56, let me summarize it. It says that sin is the power of death. You see, the, the real sting of death, the real stranglehold of death is sin because death brings you to judgment and sin brings you to eternal death and the wrath of God. And it forever robs you of life. And, and, and so, so in summary, here's what happens, okay? Jesus becomes our representative. He plunges into death. In his death, he makes propitiation for our sins, okay? He atones for our sins in his death. And then Easter, here's what Easter is about, okay? So there's where we have in the story. Jesus has become man. He has plunged into humanity, into death. He, he makes propitiation. He atones for our sin. And then Easter Sunday comes and the tomb is empty. He rises from the dead, all right? If you, if you want, we could read an account about that. We ought to do that, shouldn't we? How about Mark 16? We'll pick the Mark passage. In Mark chapter 16, I'm going to read it quickly. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for, for us from the entrance of the tomb? That's their biggest problem, they think, rolling away the stone, okay? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Jesus rises from the dead, okay? Now, here's where it gets really, really, really good for you and I, okay? Jesus rises from the dead, and the gospel is that by faith, by turning away from sin, turning away from this ignoring of God and treating him like a, like a, like a second-class thing, turning away from that and turning in faith to Jesus Christ that he is your life, that he can be trusted, repenting of sin. By faith, we can actually be joined to Jesus' death joined to his burial, and joined to his, here's where it gets good, his resurrection life. Let me read you Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay? We are joined. By faith, you can be joined to Jesus' resurrection life. Who will never die? Hebrews 7, 16 says, Jesus is alive through the power of an indestructible life. Jesus says of himself after, the, after his resurrection in John chapter 1, as he appears to 
to John on the island of Patmos. In verse 17, John, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Verse 18, And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, put that together in your mind. If we are joined to Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus will never die, Jesus is alive with an indestructible life, then we can be alive forevermore. Did you follow that progression? Jesus becomes man. He plunges into humanity perfectly, plunges into death, makes propitiation for our sins, rises from the dead, and now you and I can put our faith in him. We can be born again. We can be joined to his resurrection life. Philippians 3.21 says that someday, if you're joined to his resurrection life, you'll have a resurrection body that you might live in the new, he new heavens and the new earth forevermore. And it is in that context that Revelation 21 tells us, and death shall be no more. That's why death shall be no more. Because those who Revelation 21 is talking about are joined to the resurrected Christ. And so they cannot die. Now, what will that be like? Well, I, I think this is the most exciting thing. So there's a bunch of stuff we could, we could, we could look at here. But I'm, I'm going to focus on um, like verse 3 and verse 4. Okay, so listen to this. Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place. Okay, your Bible may say tabernacle. Okay, it's a, it's a place where you dwell. The dwelling place of God is with man. There's one. He will dwell with them. That's two. They will be his people. That's three. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, four times, four times in a row, basically, the glory of heaven is explained to you as you will dwell with God. God will be with you, okay? God, God is at the very center of eternal life. Whenever I hear people talking about heaven as streets made of a certain, uh, certain gold and, and, and gates of pearl and grandma there, I, I, I think all that may be true, but all that is really insufficient, okay? That, 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 that really falls short of the glory of heaven because the glory of heaven is the reality that God will dwell with us. And my friends, that is life at the highest level imaginable. Okay, life now... Like that we're living it now, physically, okay? It's good. It, I mean, there's some great things about this life. There are blessings about this life. We're creating the image of God. We're, we're living in our creator's world. We're enjoying the blessings of his gifts. Acts 16, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. James 1, 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from him, okay? But sin, sin mars and it destroys and it corrupts and it ruins and it brings misery to this life. But in the resurrection, we will dwell with God. Four times he said that. I'll, I will be with you. I will dwell with you. Now, what is that like? Well, Psalm 1611 says this, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. God will be the center and source of our eternity. In fact, if you look at Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22 and 23 and 24, it says this. And this is right out of Isaiah 60, by the way. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Okay, there's no, there's no temple because God is there. There's, there's no need for sun or moon or light because the glory of God blazes throughout the heavens and the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, 
So God is the center of it, and the implication of that is in verse 4, okay? So what will life be like here? Well, maybe this is the best description. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what's it like? No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Two, two great realities here, okay? Number one, all the hardship, pain, and suffering of the former, of the past, okay, will be redeemed and transformed into glory, okay? Remember that? We get that out of 2 Corinthians 4.17. We looked at that a bunch recently here at Lincoln. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, this light momentary affliction that's happening right now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Okay, so what, what is God going to do? All the pain of the past, all the, the difficulty of the past. Some of you have had a lot of it. All, all, all of the disappointments and, and, and horrible things of the sin brought about in this life, God will transform that into glory. Okay, in other words, the deeper the pain, the higher the glory. The deeper the suffering, the higher the glory. All right, so there's no loss looking back. And then looking forward, again, there's no sin. And so because there's no sin, there's no more misery. There's no broken relationships. There's no evil acts. There's no falling short. There's no broken world with its tragedies and disasters. There's no rejecting of life and God for lesser things. There's no broken bodies. There's no broken minds. There's no depression. There's no mental illness. There's no believing of lies that distort and deceive. It will be an, look at verse 6, an endless spring of satisfaction and delight. Verse 6 says, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. We will drink from the water of life forever and ever. In other words, there will be this endless sort, source of, of satisfaction and fulfillment. All of this life will never end because death will be no more. But not only will it not end, but maybe even more exciting, not only will it not end, but it will not fade either, Okay. Everything in this life fades, doesn't it? Like we, we all buy new things and, and they disappoint. Eventually they disappoint, okay? Everything in this life disappoints. Noth nothing in heaven will. Look at, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in, in verse 4. It says this about your heavenly inheritance. It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, okay? Unfading. In other words, it will never be less. It will never be less. The glory of God will always be more. How is that even possible? It, it's possible because the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what God's going to do. Ephesians 2, 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable. What does immeasurable mean? It means you can't measure it. Right? It, it, you, you can't, like if you try to say how much of this is here, you can't ever get to the end. You, there's not a tape measure long enough. There's not a scale big enough, okay? It is immeasurable. It says, says in verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what God gives is never going to fade, okay? The, the easiest way I can say that is every day in heaven is sweeter than the day before. Okay, it, it, it is it is immeasurable, the riches of Christ. So they're never going to diminish. It's never going to fade. It's immeasurable. The depths of his love, Ephesians 319 tells us, surpass knowledge. That is what it's like to dwell with God. Now, big question we're going to finish with. Who gets this? For, for whom will death be no more? 
Who's in that category? Well, I'm, I'm going I'm to just stick right to the text, okay? We could say this a lot of different ways, but, but I think the way the text says it is really fresh, and so let's just stick with it. So two, two things here. Who, who will this be for? The thirsty and the conqueror, okay? Right, right out of your text. Look again at verse 6. He says to me, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, pause, rabbit trail. What, what's he saying there? God had the first word and he'll have the last word, okay? There's a whole bunch of words in between. If you watch the news, there's a whole bunch of words right now. Words, 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 right? But, but God will have the first one and God will have the last one. Anyway, that's free. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Okay, here we go. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, this is a huge theme throughout the Bible. You find it in Isaiah. You find it all through the book of Revelation. You find, you find it everywhere. Why, 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 does, why does God describe those who, for whom death will be no more as the thirsty? Well, do you know, if you know anything about thirst, have you been thirsty? Like, you know what's funny? The thirstiest times in my life, I could describe them to you. Like, like I, don't, I haven't forgot them. Like the, the time when I was uh, probably 14, 15 years old, and, and I ran over my water jug with the tractor early in the morning, and, and, and there was no water till late at night when my dad picked me up. And I thought, literally, I thought, this is the end. I'm going to die. You know, I'd scribbled out my little will and blood on, my, on a piece of bed. No, I didn't do that. But anyway, like, I, I thought it was over for me, you know? I mean, I think I was being a little dramatic. But uh, anyway, like, I, I, I remember the thirst, okay? Um, the time that Drew and I were uh, uh, a bunch of guys, some of the guys from the church, Seabull was there. We were we were riding in, uh, we were riding from Durango to Moab. We were riding through this deserty place, and and we had hired this guide service, and, and they dropped water for us, and they gave us the GPS location, and they said we hit it because we don't want any like four wheel drivers or backpackers or anything. We we don't want them to get it, so you'll have to look for it a little bit. Well, they were right, you know. We we looked for it and look, we looked for it for about an hour until we were finally like, okay, you know, we we're, we're not going to find this, and, and so we had no water, you know, and we, had, we tried to make it a bunch, and Andrew's bike broke down twice, you know, right, when I'm dying of thirst, okay, in, in other words, I remember the days when I'm thirsty, you know why, because when you're thirsty, it creates a single, all-consuming desire, when, when you're thirsty, when you're really thirsty, nothing else matters, right, there's nothing else you want, your tension is not divided, your affections are not, they're set on one thing. You're not trying to decide what to do next. You're thinking about one all-consuming desire. When you're really thirsty, I mean really thirsty, not like, oh, I, could, I could use a Coke, you know. No, no, I'm talking about really thirsty. You're not tempted to like finish up some errands before you go get a drink. You're not tempted to watch your favorite show or take a nap or go to the bank or quit. No, you're, you're going to quench your thirst. There's this one thing you want, Right? Now pull that back into the passage. Why does the Bible use this metaphor? It's because for the people for whom God is the one thing they desire. He is the thing. There's a lot of other stuff, but God is the thing. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know what the problem is? The problem is we, we try to quench our thirst with other stuff. This great little image in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.13. 
God's talking about the Israelites. He said, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You know what a fountain of living waters is, right? It's like an artesian well, okay? That just flows and flows and flows and flows and flows, okay? He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know what broken cistern is? That's when you, you get a, like a, a big rocky place and you, you chip out a little bowl, a little indentation, and then the rain, you know, when it comes, okay, sporadically, it fills that up. And, and if it's cracked, it's going to seep out and, and slowly, you know, seep away. But, but while it's still there, the insects are going to breed in it and, the, you know, the hyenas are going to pee in it. And I, I don't know. I'm thinking wilderness here, right? But that, that's what happens, right? And, 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 and here's the picture. God says, man, I'm the fountain of living waters, and you go make yourselves these little rock indentations of pond water and try to drink out of that. My friends, only God can satisfy your thirst. So you know what happens? We, we spend our life running to all these broken cisterns and never getting our thirst quenched. I'll never forget when Haddon, he's 21 now, so this was a long time ago, but he was, he was like a toddler, and we were at McDonald's. And uh, I had taken the kids there, and Emma was somewhere else, and so I was feeding the kids at McDonald's, cooking. And uh, we were in the playland, and he was like too small to get a Happy Meal, and I was too cheap to buy him one, so I brought him like his little crackers and, you know, baby stuff, you know, toddler stuff, and kind of getting off other people's plates and stuff. And he's eating, and I had his little cup there, and and he keeps like whining for it, and I give it to him. He drink it, and he throw it down, and ah, I'd throw his head back. And I was like, "This little turkey, he wants me to buy him a coke. I ain't buying you. I, you know, like you got your, I got your cup right here. You know, I kept giving it to him. He kept drinking it, throwing it down. Ah, you know, throw a fit. You know, man, we did that for forty five minutes. The other kids were playing. I just thought, man, what, what a little fit thrower. You know. Until I finally realized I forgot to put that little straw in there that goes down in the bottom. You know, that little piece that actually. You know what? A lot of people do that their whole life. Minute. They'll scroll through Facebook for hours. And at the end of that, they're as thirsty as they were when they began. But they keep going back. Man, people will, people will work and work for money and, and trying to, if I could just get this much and if I, we could just get to this point and we could just buy. Man, I tell you what, if there's ever anything that ought to prove that wrong, it's the last couple months. Man, there has been more money given away for free than in the history of the world. And I haven't seen any change in people's desires being satisfied. In fact, interesting thing, we have seen no decrease in our benevolence or shelter ministry at all. Like if there were ever a time that something would have solved something, you would have thought that. You know why? Because only God satisfies. Are you thirsty for him? Are you thirsty for him? And there's this great exchange in John 4. By the way, Season two, The Chosen, comes out today, 7 p.m. Make sure you grab it, okay? Man, so good, so good. I, I, watched, the, I watched the woman at the well uh, scene this week. And man, I'm telling you, that may be the, the finest five minutes of television ever created. Man, it's good. But here's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. 
Jesus answered her in verse 10, John 4, 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jump down to verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. There's everything in this world. But whoever drinks of the water that I, that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That's, that's really what Revelation 21 said, wasn't it? In verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from him a, the spring of water of life without payment. Jump over to the next chapter, 22.1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystals flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Man, is, is God just talking about water there? I, I don't think so. You know why? Because Psalm 36.8 says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. Man, can you imagine? Guys, can you imagine? The, this huge river running through heaven that is full of delights. And we drink from it forever. For whom will death be no more? For the thirsty. Some of you want that. And sadly, some of you probably still don't. For the thirsty. And number two, Real quickly, the conqueror. Now, who's the conqueror? Well, verse 7 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I, I think I can explain to you who the conqueror is just by taking you to a different passage. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, the context is clear. It's the person who makes it to the end. Do you have any idea how many people start out Christianity? They start out a profession of faith. And then they don't finish. They... They stop believing. They stop trusting. They stop. They fall away. They get distracted. They get bored. They get whatever. And one of the themes for the book of Revelation is the one who finishes to the end is the one who's truly born again. Finally, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, this passage is really bracketed this way. For some, death will be no more. And for others, there will be two deaths. The second of which, immeasurably more tragic than the first. Now, as you look through that list of cowardly, faithless, detestable murders, you, you'll probably notice that we all have been that. First um, Corinthians tells us that. You all were once these things. But if you've been joined to Jesus Christ by faith, then you cannot continue in your sin. You can't stay there. You can't live unrepentant. You, you can't live without being convicted of your sin, confessing it, turning to Christ in faith, and progressively, progressively 
being sanctified, being made more like Jesus. So verse 8 is describing those who, who stayed in their sin. Really, he's describing those who were not thirsty for God. They were cowards. They were thirsty for their own self-preservation. They, they were thirsty for me, themselves. They feared men more than they feared God. They feared their reputation being blemished more than they feared God. The violent were thirsty for revenge and bitterness that flowed out of a murderous heart. Some were thirsty for sexual morality. Others were thirsty for idols of all types. Some were thirsty in that they had no desire for truth. They, their thirst was to make up their own reality, to be their own truth. They were thirsty for lies. And these will die another death. After judgment, they'll be cast into the lake of fire, which the easiest way for me to describe for you hell is just a place where God is not, right? What, what, what's heaven? We, we just read it. Verse four, it's a place where God is, right? He dwells with you. He dwells with you. He dwells with you. He dwells with you. That, that makes a point. What is hell? It's a place where he's not. It's really, it's really the moment where God gives people what they have wanted their whole lives. People who have lived in this life and said, I, I am not interested in you. I'm not interested in you. I don't want that stuff. I want, as, I want as little of that as possible. If I've got to have a little, I'll stomach it. But I really don't want, I really want something else. And it is the final moment where God says, okay, you're apart from me forever. That's the second death. My friends, if you are joined to Jesus Christ in a faith relationship, Man, you're able to stare death in the face because for you, there's coming a time where death will be no more. But if you're not joined to Christ, please hear me out. Please, for even a moment, would you give me your attention and would you consider the reality that you're gonna die and that your only hope is to be joined to the one who became man, who plunged into death, who made propitiation, who made payment for your sin and who rose again and now who offers you life. Nothing else will quench your thirst like Jesus. Right now, man, seek him. Pursue him. Don't, don't drink of what the world offers. There's nothing ultimately satisfying there. Come to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for the work that you have accomplished for us on the cross. So thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, that, that Easter is our joy because you are alive. And because you live, God, we can live. We can live forever. We can live with you in fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God, that is so good. God, I, it, it goes beyond my imagination. Father, I want it. And God, I pray that you would make the people in this room to want it. Father, put it in us to go after you today, to have more of you today. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.